0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 11, Exodus chapters 12 and 13. Last week we saw that the king of Egypt finally released God's people, but not until Egypt was decimated. The livestock was dead. The field and tree crops were destroyed. And now hundreds of thousands of Egyptian males, including the Pharaoh's own heir to the throne, were deceased. And Israel left Egypt and Passover in the month of Nisan. So while believers celebrate Passover as a day of personal salvation due to the redemptive death of Yeshua, the Jewish people view Passover, Pesach in Hebrew, as a day of national redemption from Egypt. In fact, the national redemption from Egypt was a shadow of the personal redemption that Messiah Yeshua would provide by means of his own blood in time. Let's re-read read a little bit of Exodus chapter 12 to start our lesson today. We're going to read from, chapter, from uh, chapter 12, verse 29 to the end. Chapter 12, verse 29 to the end of that chapter. At midnight, Adonai killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of livestock. Pharaoh got up in the night. He, all his servants, all the Egyptians. There was horrendous wailing in Egypt. For there wasn't a single house without someone dead in it. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, "Up, Leave my people, both you and the people of Israel, go. Serve Adonai as you said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you said, but just get out of here. But bless me too. The Egyptians pressed to send the people out of the land quickly because they said otherwise we'll all be dead. The people took their dough before it had become leavened and wrapped their kneading bowls in their clothes on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done what Moshe had said and they had asked the Egyptians to give them silver and gold jewelry and clothing. And Adonai had made the Egyptians so favorably disposed toward the people that they... Had uh, let them have whatever they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel traveled from Ramses to Sukkot. Not A mixed crowd also went up with them, as well as livestock in large numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked matzah loaves from the dough that they had brought out of Egypt since it was unleavened because they had been driven out of egypt without time to prepare supplies for themselves now the time of the people of the time the people of israel lived in egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years to the day all the divisions of adonai left the land of egypt this was a night when adonai kept vigil to bring them out of the land of egypt and this same night continues to be a night when adonai keeps vigil for all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. I said to Moses and Aaron, this is the regulation for the Pesach lamb. No foreigner is to eat of it. But if anyone has a slave he bought for money, when you've circumcised him, he may eat it. Neither a traveler nor a hired servant may eat it. It is to be eaten in one house. You're not to take any of the meat outside the house. You're not to break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel is to keep it. If a foreigner staying with you wants to observe Adonai's Pesach, all his males must be circumcised. Then he may take part and observe it. He will be like a citizen of the land. But no uncircumcised person is to eat of it. The same teaching is to apply equally to the citizen and to the foreigner living among you. All the people of Israel did just as Adonai had ordered Moses and Aaron. On that very day, Adonai brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their divisions. Well, here we read of a place named Sukkot. Now, if the name Sukkot sounds familiar, it ought to. All right, Becky and I, as have many of you, gone to Israel to celebrate the biblical Feast of the Tabernacles. Also known in Hebrew as Sukkot. Now, this fall festival is the grand finale of the uh, to, to end the yearly festival cycle. Now, Sukkot, as most of you probably know, means booths or huts. Okay, the idea here is of temporary shelter or a temporary stopping place, a place you pass through on your way to somewhere else. Now we're also told in verse 37 that about 600,000 men, not counting children, made up the group that left Ramses. So from that number, 600,000, how do scholars arrive at the two to three and a half million people, they say, participated in the Exodus. Well, first of all, the 600,000 are men only. And it includes no children, but it also includes no women. Nor does it include the elderly. Okay, Here's why. The Hebrew rule of census taking only counts men of an age that could be part of the military. Okay, that is, males of an age not too young and not too old to fight. So that 600,000 number we just read about consists of males from roughly the age of 20 to 50. All right, That range. Um, no children of either sex were included. If a man had only one wife, and some men at that time had more than one wife, and a few had none, then the 600,000 gets doubled to 1.2 million. If each couple had only two children, and we know that the average household at that time consisted of as many children as possible, okay, then the 1.2 million would double to 2.4 million. Okay, but that's only the Israelites that lived up in the land of Goshen near the city of Ramses. Okay, thousands more lived throughout Egypt and joined the Israelites during their journey. Now let me try to explain what you're looking at in this chart up here. I know it's fairly small letters, but here's the idea of it. There is what's called natural population increase. You take you take the deaths away from the births on average in any given year, and what you wind up with is what's called natu- uh, the natural increase. Okay, births minus deaths in a population, and it has been calculated for years and years and years by by nations and their census bureaus. And to give you an example, in our day, all right, in Indonesia. The natural increase is about two and a half percent per year in Syria. in the news a lot, two point six in Western Africa, two point seven in Guatemala, two point nine. And let me tell you, all right, today these numbers go up as high as six percent. So this is kind of middle of the pack. Now the reason I showed you this is to show you here, at that kind of increase, this is how long it takes for for the population to double. Alright, at 2.5%, the population will double every 29 years. So if I start out with 10, and it doubles in in 29 years to 20, in 29 more years it doubles from 20 to 40. 29 more years from 40 to 80. You following me? In this column, based on these, on these very modest, um, natural increases, which almost certainly the natural increase of most of the known world at the time of the Exodus was well beyond these numbers. Beginning with the number of 74, Joseph and his family and the Israelites there, all right, who, who first came to Egypt, after at, at, at the population uh, increase of 2.5% per year, after 430 years in Egypt, would be 2.22 million Israelites at that low rate. Had it was, if it was growing at the rate of modern day Syria, it would be four. At the rate of modern day Western Africa, seven million. At the rate of modern day Guatemala, fourteen million. So believe me, a number of two and a half to three million, is on the low side of what it could have been. Okay. Now, not only that, But verse 38 explains that in addition to the Israelites, a mixed multitude, a mixed crowd went with them as well. Egyptians, foreigners of several nationalities and races, of which there were scores of thousands living in Egypt at that time. Families that consisted of Israelites who had married Egyptians, perhaps several generations earlier. and had only marginally continued to even identify themselves with Israel. I mean, let's face it, if you had the opportunity, would you connect yourself to the slave class if you didn't have to? If you could marry out of it? These all joined up with Israel as they marched out of the country. This is why God made instruction and provision concerning these so-called foreigners... And Hebrew ger, right, joining up with Israel, giving up their formal tribal, uh, former tribal affiliations, and theoretically, therefore, their connections with their false gods, and declaring allegiance to one of the Israelite tribes. And oh, by the way, they took with them, according to verse 38, an enormous amount of livestock. Their own livestock, of course, as most of the Egyptian livestock was now dead. And their carcasses out rotting in the pastures. And it included all kinds of livestock. Sheep, goats, cattle, oxen. I mean, can you visualize this incredible migration of people and animals? I mean, I doubt the world has ever seen anything like it. The equivalent of the population of the entire state of Oregon was leaving Egypt at once. And they took with them all their livestock and all their possessions and some short-term food and water provisions. I mean, what a sight to behold that must have been. I mean, the entire world would have known about this in short order. And probably wondered just where it was they were heading. Right? Because life was never going to be the same for those already living to wherever it was Israel was going. Well, when the multitude arrived at a place that they would later call Sukkot, and they stopped there for a short time, they baked that unleavened dough, that matzah that God had instructed they prepared before they left. And apparently they had precious little else because by verse 39, it says, they left Egypt without time to gather adequate food supplies for themselves. This is pretty much it. Now, next we find out that the exact amount of time that Israel was in Egypt was this 430 years. Now, while this disagrees somewhat with Genesis 15-13 that quotes God saying they'll be in, be in Egypt for 400 years, at the least we see that the Israelites were in Egypt for about four centuries. Right? Um, but another way to understand this is that the Bible often speaks in round numbers. okay now we just saw a few verses earlier where it said there were 600,000 males in the Exodus. Of course it was not precisely 600.00 okay that's just a round number as was the 400 years. however verse 41 uh, 40 and 41 says it was 430 years to the day. that's not a round number. Okay. So there's no reason to take it as anything other than precisely 430 years. But understand one thing. Okay. By the lunar calendar, a day is 350, I mean, a a, a year is 354 days. By our modern 365 day calendar, they were in Egypt just under 417 years. Now, the Bible generally uses the lunar Jewish calendar. Further, many rabbis insist that some of the 400 years that Israel was in Egypt included Abraham's time there. Okay, So there's some disagreement about all this. Right? A few scholars, both Hebrew and Christian, hold that the amount of time from when Jacob arrived in Egypt, to the day Moses led them into the wilderness was closer to 250 years. All right, so there's there's some variation about what Jewish and Christian scholars think about this. Now, I love the expression used to describe the Israelites leaving Egypt. They were called the hosts of the Lord. Or in some versions, all the divisions of the Lord. Most literally, from the original Hebrew, the phrase is Yehovah's forces. Okay? In fact, the Hebrew word used to describe the hosts or divisions or forces is Sabah. All right? And Sabah means hosts or forces because it, it has a sense of being in the military. Okay? God called the Israelites in essence, his army. And the Bible uses a very similar term at times to describe the host, the sabah of heaven, meaning the angels. And indeed, angels are God's spirit army. Now in verse 42, God it says that God kept watch over the Israelites as they left Egypt. That is, he protected them, he guarded them, he shepherded them. And then at verse 43, it's, we begin to get some instructions and just who can take part of Passover. Right? And, and it starts right out stating that no foreigner can be involved. Yet an Israelite's foreign slave, purchased with money, provided he's been circumcised, which means that he's been joined to Israel, might may take Part, A traveler, a visitor, even a house guest is not welcome to participate if they're not part of Israel. Now, then in verse 46, we're given the injunction that not a bone of the Passover ram is to be broken. Now, of course, that was made a point of emphasis, wasn't it, in the Gospels? That despite the beatings, and the execution by Roman crucifixion, not one bone of Yeshua's body was broken. Which, by the way, is a most unusual circumstance because it was usual in Roman-style crucifixion to break the leg bones of the condemned man as a means to faster death. They just didn't have time to wait around for him to die, so they helped it. Now look at verse 49. God makes it clear that there is but one ritual, but one law concerning the Passover. There's not Passover A for natural born Israelites, and Passover B for foreigners who have a declared allegiance to Israel, those who've joined themselves to Israel, all who are citizens of Israel, no matter whether they have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's genes flowing through their veins or not are to be considered the same before God when it comes to spiritual matters. Now I've covered with this, I covered this all with you before, but before we close out chapter twelve, it bears repeating. We now understand that Yeshua is the highest fulfillment of Passover, that He is the sacrificial Passover ram for all. That those of us who were born outside of the genealogical line of Abraham, Gentiles, born outside the natural family of Israel, we are grafted into, joined with, the people, the nation of people, who are the line of Abraham when we accept Christ. But, this is from a spiritual aspect. And to God, the true members of His ideal Israel are all those who trust Him, and trusting Him means accepting Yeshua as Messiah. Now I want you to follow along with me. Open your Bibles now to Romans 9. Open your Bibles to Romans 9. We're going to take just a moment to see how this principle laid down here in Exodus 12 comes to its fullest meaning in Christ. We're going to see what Paul says about all this, because right here in Exodus, the groundwork, the basic principle of Gentile believers, foreigners, gear in Bible terms, being joined with Israel to partake in her covenants is set down. So, Romans 9. I'm going to read a few verses beginning with verse 6. We're going to jump around a little bit. Verse 6. And as we read this, think a little bit, not only about that time, but where we are today. But the present condition of Israel doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. For not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel. Indeed, not all the descendants are seed of Abraham. Rather, what is to be called your seed will be in Yitzhak, in Isaac. In other words, it is not the physical children who are children of God, but the children the promise refers to who are considered seed. Now jump on down to verse 23. Uh, Let's let's start with 19. We'll expand it a little bit. Start with verse 19. But you will say to me, then, why does he still find fault with us? After all, who resists his will? Who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? Or has the potter no right to make from a given lump of clay this pot for honorable use and that other one for dishonorable Now, what if God, even though He was quite willing to demonstrate His anger and make known His power, patiently put up with His, with people who deserved punishment and were ripe for destruction? What if He did this in order to make known the riches of His glory to those who are the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, that is to us, whom He called not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles as indeed he says in Hosea those who were not my people I will call my people her who was not loved I will call loved and in the very place where they were told you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God move on down to verse 30 so what are we to say this, that Gentiles, even though they were not striving for righteousness, have obtained righteousness. But it is a a righteousness grounded in trusting. However, Israel, even though they kept pursuing a Torah that offers righteousness, did not reach what the Torah offers. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness as being grounded in trusting but as if it were grounded in doing legalistic works. They stumbled over the stone that makes people stumble. Okay, I think you see where I'm going with this. We're going to look at it a little more in a minute. Verses seven and eight of Romans 9 are so terribly important to grasp because here it's defined just who this seed of Abraham, meaning all those for who the promises made to Abraham by God were intended, just who these people are. And just as important who they're not. Okay? And we find out that the physical descendants of Abraham are not all to be considered seed, just those who come through the line of Isaac. Who would have thought that in our modern day, that part of the definition coming down through Isaac would be so terribly important to define whom God's people are on a physical level because Islam says that it was Isaac's brother Ishmael who would be the line of Abraham's seed. Work in the road. This shows you just how the most basic premise of Islam is utter deceit. Okay? And I remind you that the founder of Islam wasn't even born until five centuries after these words of Paul were spoken. So Paul wasn't battling theologies with an Islamic world because it didn't even exist. Okay, Further in verse 8, we see that from a spiritual aspect, spiritual aspect, not all of the legitimate physical seed, the descendants of Isaac, would be counted as seed either. Okay, Turn quickly now to Romans 2, chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 25 through 29 Romans 2 chapter uh Romans 2 verse 25 For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says but if you're a transgressor of Torah your circumcision has become become uncircumcision Therefore if an uncircumcised man a gentile keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised, physically a Gentile, but obeys the Torah, will stand as a judgment on you who have had a brit milah circumcision ceremony, Jews, and have, had, and have Torah written out for you, which you violated. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart, spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Major principle. Notice the key here. God sees this true Israel, and I'm going to tell you this term, this true Israel, this spiritual Israel. This has caused more trouble (laughs) trying to grasp what's going on here. What does He mean by this? I mean, it's led to replacement theology, which is which is wrong. Okay. God sees the true Israel, which is the heavenly ideal of Israel as a spiritual entity. Okay. Therefore, with the advent of Christ, God sees his Israel as a congregation of Jewish and Gentile believers in the Messiah, he said most certainly he sees and recognizes the physical nation of Israel, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, the people born as natural Israelites, as Israel. Physical Israel. National Israel. But that is apart and separate from this spiritual Israel of God, this everlasting spiritual entity. Now remember I've told you several times that our biblical chapter designations and the way we separate and divide and number Bible passages is arbitrary and it was done simply for the sake of being able to refer to a particular book or a passage in the original which was written on lengthy scrolls the books of the Bible were undivided right? each book was like one long continuous work Okay, in fact the books originally didn't even have names. So where we have this tendency to mentally stop with a certain subject at the end of a chapter end of a chapter, subject's over, something new begins the next one and then feel as though we're starting a whole brand new train of thought with the beginning of a chapter we get a very skewed idea of what's actually happening, and that's just not true. That's not the way the Bible works. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it doesn't. So, in this case, the chapter 2 of Romans simply continues right on, same thought, right on into Romans 3. So let me read to you Romans uh, 2.24 through Romans 3.4 without stopping, as it was originally written. Listen how this sounds. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says, but if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who have had a circumcision ceremony and have Torah written out for you but violated for the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly true circumcision is not only external and physical on the contrary the real Jew is one inwardly and true circumcision is of the heart spiritual not literal so that his praise comes not from other people but from God then What advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them have been unfaithful, so what? Does their their, uh, faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid! God would be true even if everyone were a liar. See how that flows through? Notice how Paul makes sure that we understand that the physical differences and purposes God created for his chosen people Israel remain intact. And then remain intact even after Yeshua has come and gone. Israel Physical Israel remains central to God's purposes and they remain set apart and they remain valuable to him. Okay, So here in these last few verses of Romans 2 and the first of Romans 3, we get this all-important God principle that tends to really mess with our minds. As pertains to each of God's commands and principles, there is this earth- earthly principle Physical, fleshly level on the one hand, and there's this corresponding heavenly, spiritual level on the other. Okay, this is what I call the reality of duality. In this case, there are these two levels of Israel. The physical and the spiritual. Okay. Both are completely real, they exist simultaneously and they're organically connected. However, not everyone who is part of physical Israel on this earthly physical plane will belong to the spiritual heavenly Israel. And not everyone who is part of the spiritual Israel will be physical Israelites, will they? Just as with Passover, there is the earthly ritual, an earthly meaning that Moses was instructed to perform, and then there is this fullest spiritual aspect that was fulfilled with the death of Jesus Now the physical aspect of Israel consists of the earthly nation of Israel and its people, people that we today refer to as Jews. Spiritual Israel consists of all those, Jew and Gentile, who are faithful to God. That is those who have accepted God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, does this kind of come together for you? I mean, I, I hope so. Right? I mean, I realize this can be difficult. All right. Now, with this as a background, allow me to address one other issue that, because of the point in mankind's history we find ourselves, it has become critical for believers to grasp. The church consists of all believers, Jew and Gentile. There are not Jewish believers apart from Gentile believers to God. A believer is a believer is a believer is a believer. It doesn't matter whether Jewish believers go to a Gentile church or a Messianic Jewish synagogue. It doesn't matter whether a Gentile attends a Messianic Jewish synagogue, as many do, or a typical Gentile church. These are just man-made divisions and organizations and institutions. Okay. The thing is this, over the centuries, the meaning of the term church has changed. Okay. Remember, church is simply the chosen English rendering of the Greek word ecclesia, okay. which is what the New Testament often uses when referring to believers. Sadly, over time, the term church has lost its true meaning. The church is people, people. When the Bible refers to church, ecclesia, it's only referring to people, to human beings who submitted to Messiah Yeshua. The church has nothing to do with buildings and places and activities and man-ordained denominational organizations. It's a terrible misuse of the term church when we refer to the place where we go to worship as church. It's a terrible misuse, mis, misuse of the term church to call what many do on Sundays as doing church. Okay? The church is believers, period. You're the church. I'm the church. A Gentile who believes in Christ is the church. And Israelite, as we think of it today, a Jew who believes in Christ is the church. Unfortunately, our misuse of the term church has led to this way of thinking that means that Jews, Hebrews who trust Yeshua are somehow in a different class or different category than Gentiles who trust Yeshua. Nothing could be further from the truth. God, through Moses in Exodus, through Paul in Romans, through Christ in the Gospels, and through several of the prophets has tried with great effort to get this into our little pea brains. Does all this really make a difference to us and what we study? You bet it does. Because this shows just how connected we are to Israel in every imaginable way. It explains how the body of believers, the church, is actually supposed to see itself. That our true identity is part of spiritual Israel. Not a new Israel. Not a replacement of Israel. Rather, believers compose the spiritual ideal that represents all that God envisioned for a group of people set apart for himself. Israel. Let's move on now to chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Exodus. Adonai said to Moses, set aside for me all the firstborn. Whatever is first from the womb among the people of Israel, both of humans and of animals, belongs to me. Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you left Egypt, the abode of slavery, because Adonai, by the strength of his hand, has brought you out of this place. Don't eat hametz, leavening." You are leaving today in the month of Aviv. Okay. When Adonai brings you into the land of, of the Kenani, Hiti, Amorai, Hibi, and Yavusi, which he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, you are to eat matzah. The seventh day is to be a festival for Adonai. Matzah is to be eaten throughout the seven days. Neither hametz nor leavening agents are to be seen with you throughout your territory. On that day, you're to tell your son, it is because of what Adonai did for me when I left Egypt. Moreover, it will serve you as a sign on your hand and a reminder between your eyes So that Adonai's Torah may be on your lips because with a strong hand Adonai brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you're to observe this regulation at its proper time year after year. When Adonai brings you into the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your ancestors and gives it to you, you are to set apart for Adonai everything that is first from the womb. Every firstborn male animal will belong to Adonai. Every firstborn from a donkey you're to redeem with a lamb. But if you choose not to redeem it, you have to break its neck. But from people, you're to redeem every firstborn son. When at some future time, your son asks you, what is this? Then say to him with a strong hand, Adonai brought us out of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. When Pharaoh was unwilling to let us go, Adonai killed all the firstborn males in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and of animals. That is why I sacrificed to Adonai any male that is first from the womb of an animal, but all the firstborn of my sons. I redeem. This will serve as a sign on your hand and at the front of a headband around your forehead that with a strong hand Adonai brought us out of Egypt. After Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not guide them to the highway that goes through the land of the Philistines, the Philistines because it was close by. God thought that the people upon seeing war might change their minds and return to Egypt. Rather, God led the people by a roundabout route through the desert, by the Sea of Suf. The people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt, fully armed. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the people of Israel swear an oath when he said, God will certainly remember you and you're to carry my bones up with you away from here. They traveled from Sukkot and set up camp at Etam, at the edge of the desert, Adonai and I went ahead of them a cloud, uh, in a column of cloud, during the daytime to lead them on their way, and, in ni- and at night in a column of fire to give them light. Thus, they could travel both by day and by night. Neither the column of cloud by day nor the column of cloud at night went away from in front of the people. Set aside for me. All the firstborn. We're going to see in chapter 13 some biblical principles that God develops that are going to play a huge role in the new covenant that will be realized in Christ Jesus. But before we get to that though, notice that instruction is given as to when the changes to Passover or better the additions to the Passover festival, matzah, are to begin. It's to start after the Israelites are in the land of Canaan, or as the Bible puts it, in the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, Amorites, and so forth. And this festival of matzah is to occur during something that will eventually be called a Passover week. Actually, it starts on Nisan 14, Passover, and continues until the 21st of Nisan. Now, an additional command concerning this Feast of Unleavened Bread, matzah, Is It says you're not only to remove all leavening from your house, you're to remove it from your territory. That is, once the Israelites take possession of Canaan, during this festival they can't even have leaven anywhere in the territories that they live. And in verse 8 the people are told that the recounting of God delivering Israel from Egypt is to be taught to their children. Now, a quick word about these various nations, people that were the current occupiers of the land of Canaan, because we're going to see them over and over and over again from here forward. The Canaanites were the scores of tribes and clans that had been spawned by Noah's infamous grandson, Canaan. Remember that Canaan was accursed by God via Noah. Much of that curse a result of Canaan's father, Noah's son, Ham. And the Canaanites represented at this time the majority of the inhabitants of that loosely defined territory that the Bible calls the land of Canaan. Now please recall that the land of Canaan was not a sovereign nation with borders. It was just an area of land. Right, that was given a general name for the sake of identification. It was an area predominantly inhabited by descendants of Canaan, but scores of these descendants had formed their own independent people groups, several of them becoming small city-states, each with their own king and each usually with their own set of gods. Now, the Hittites were not native to the land of Canaan. The Hittites were very high, and powerful culture that dominated most of what today is Turkey and Syria and northern Iraq and western Iran. Now, while they had settlements and influence in the land of Canaan, they were not dominant there. There's there's no clear agreement among Bible scholars or historians as to the ancestors of the Hittites. Some think they were from Ham. Okay? Others from Japheth and Yet others still think they were Semites from Shem. But the study of them is rather new because until the 1800s the only mention of a group of people called the Hittites was in the Bible. And of course to many academics that just meant it was made up by the people who wrote the Bible. Imagine their surprise. Since the Hittite culture has been unearthed and found to be large and dominating with a fully developed written language that has many similarities to Hebrew and the Hittite records themselves have yielded corroboration of many biblical texts concerning the time of the patriarchs. Well the Hivites and the Amorites were were descendants of Canaan, but they had achieved sufficient population and power on their own by now as to warrant being spoken of as separate nations of people. Now, if you'll recall, the people who populated the city of Shechem, where Abraham first stopped in Canaan, and then later Jacob would settle down for a while, were in, identified in the scriptures as Hivites. The Jebusites were also of the line of Canaan, but they occupied the hill country in southern Canaan, while the Hibites occupied the plains. The Jebusites are given credit for being founders of the city of Shalem, later called Yerushalayim, and were controlling the city when David took it from them, about a thousand B.C. Now the key thing to understand here is that after the great flood The people that God had allowed to populate the land that he would eventually give to the descendants of Abraham were declared cursed because they were the descendants of Canaan. Now, the thing that's hard for us to accept sometimes is that Almighty God has allowed some people to be cursed or ransomed, if you would, in order that others might be redeemed. We hear the Lord speak of Egypt as being ransomed for his people, Israel. In other words, in order for Israel to carry out their portion of God's grand plan, God had Egypt pay a very dear price. We see the same thing happening here, where Canaan will soon become a ransom for Israel as well. Canaan is going to pay a heavy price with the loss of their land. So that Israel will get the land God set aside for himself as he had promised it to Abraham. Now let us not ever forget, particularly those of us who are Gentile believers, that Israel has also paid and is paying currently a very dear price so that we could be joined to the covenants God gave to them. Okay. They were given the word of God to keep alive right, at the expense of the greatest continuous and ongoing persecution of a people that the world has ever or probably ever will know. Okay. They eventually had their hearts made stony for a time for the sake of Gentiles. That the gospel is taken to the entire Gentile world. That is why Israel had no business being proud or haughty about their lofty place before God as they viewed what God did to Egypt and Canaan and then later to Assyria and then later to Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, all these things for the sake of Israel. And Paul then turns around and tells us who are Gentile believers, that we have no business thinking that we're somehow better than the Israelites who God has and is using for his purposes because God gave us the task of spreading the gospel. Look at all that had to happen in order for Christ to come. All that had to be prepared. Nations, empires built and destroyed, entire peoples decimated, persecution of the Jews... The church age, as we like to call it, or the time of the Gentiles, as the Bible refers to it, that 2,000 years since Christ is just for a time and for a specific purpose. Okay. In God's great scheme of things, our spreading of the gospel is just one piece of a very big puzzle okay, that many other people and nations have played roles in since the beginning of the world. We need to remember that the gospel is primarily about redemption. But redemption is not God's end plan. Redemption is not the be-all, end-all of the Creator's divine purposes. Redemption is just a step. A very necessary step. Among other earlier steps along to the way, along the way to the final stage of his vision of having a universe of perfection full of beings that love him and commune with him for all eternity. It's just a step. Okay, now in verse 9, we get some words that have led to a peculiar practice by Orthodox Jews. It speaks of having a sign on your hand and a reminder between your eyes. And it's repeated in verse 16. Now, nobody knows exactly when this tradition started, but it certainly existed in Jesus' day. I highly suspect that Jesus wore this. I can't prove it. But it was the norm. He would have stood out like a sore thumb if he hadn't you've all probably seen pictures of some Jews wearing this strange headband with this little black box all right, that sits squarely in the middle of their foreheads. It's from what we just read, a reminder between their eyes. And of these same Jews wrapping a leather strap around their arms, around their forearm and wrist with a little black box attached to it. Well this is how the orthodox Jews have come to take the meanings that the meaning of verses 9 and 16. These wraps are called tefillin in Hebrew or phylacteries in the Greek. The black boxes contain tiny scrolls okay with certain prescribed Old Testament Bible verses and prayers written on them. Okay? And it's standard that they use Exodus 13, verses 1 through 10, 11 through 16, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 21. So they've taken this command to remember and to put it between their foreheads and on their wrists to a rather literal sense. Now, starting in verse 11, Morris said about this setting apart of the firstborn. And we are reminded that whenever the Bible speaks of the firstborn, it doesn't mean any firstborn. Rather, it means, and I'm sorry, ladies, only firstborn males. Hey, I didn't make the rules. Next, we see that this includes animals as well as humans and then goes on to speak of a donkey. It has to be redeemed with a lamb. Very interesting. What's being set up here? is the entire God principle of redemption. And within the principle of redemption, we begin to see this process of redemption. Now, I don't want to get philosophical, but but let's remember that while at least on the surface, redemption is a principle quite familiar to us Christians. It was not a principle well understood by the world in Moses' time, just as it's not understood by the world in our time. Even the Jews of today have a more nationalistic, corporate, collective view of what redemption is about. They don't see Messiah's purpose as redeeming individual souls from a fiery eternity. They see the Messiah as returning Israel to glory and power as a nation. All right, and establishing his physical kingdom on earth around a physical Israel. Okay. From the time of Moses forward, it became practice that within 30 days of the birth of a firstborn son, the father paid to the high priest, or his representative, an amount of money to redeem back that son. That was the law. Now notice the dichotomy set up here. In Egypt, the firstborns of Egypt were set apart and marked for death. In Israel, the firstborns of Israel were set apart and marked for life and for service to God. In Egypt, the firstborns were set apart and sacrificed, killed, ransomed, in order to redeem Israel. In Israel... The firstborns are set apart to be sacrificed to God. But by the terms of redemption, they're bought back. Now remember how Abraham took Isaac to the altar on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him to God? But God redeemed Isaac by substituting a ram, which is a type after which the Passover would become modeled, and Isaac wasn't killed. Again, what was the basis of that redemption? substitution. Instead of Isaac, it was a ram. I don't want to get deep into the subject of redemption yet, but it's key to understand that there are two basic kinds of redemption spoken of in the scriptures. One is the act of a relative, a kinsman, and it concerns family members and it's often called the kinsman redeemer. In Moses' day and for hundreds of years after this, this type of redemption usually involved a living brother marrying and redeeming his deceased brother's widow. It can also involve land and property. The second type of redemption is a buying back or a substitution and does not have to do with the rights of a relative. It involves a deliverance brought about by paying a ransom. In Hebrew, this kind of redemption is called padah. And that is what we're talking about here in Exodus 13. It's not the kinsman-redeemer kind, which in Hebrew is ga'al. The firstborn donkey and animal, therefore, has to be redeemed. Padah, at the price, a ransom price, of a clean animal permissible for use as a sacrifice, a ram. And the Israelites have the choice of killing the donkey or paying the redemptive price. Why would the Israelites choose not to redeem a donkey if it was born defective or weak? Perhaps they had no need for another donkey? Because the ram was more valuable to them than a donkey at that particular moment. But God makes it clear in verse 13 that with every human firstborn male, there's no choice. God values human life so much that every human male firstborn must be redeemed, must have a redemption price paid. I can't help here but point out that this sure seems to shoot holes in the notion that a mother has the right to abort the life of an unborn child, if she so chooses. And what, it, what is it that God says that Israelites are to say in explanation to their children about this practice of paying a redemption price for their firstborns? Look at verse 14 and 15. It's to remind every generation of Israelites that A, human life must be redeemed and that it involves a price, and B, God used the death of the Egyptians' firstborns as a terrible price, the redemptive price for Israel, his chosen set-apart people. So here the principle and process of redemption is set up. If real life, which to God is the life of our souls, not not of our corrupted bodies, is to be realized, then we must be redeemed for a price. And what's that price? A substitutionary death. And the substitution must be male, and it must be a firstborn. Do you see this? This entire premise for Yeshua's substitutionary death for us is now in place. It's not optional. Now, verse 15 sums up what has just been taught in the previous verses. Verse 16, the command first stated in verse 9 is repeated to wear this sign. Verse 17 now shifts the focus of the book of Exodus to the actual Exodus itself. And it leads off with the reason God had them take the route that he did. And the first thing we're told is that the route is the route they didn't take, interestingly. They didn't take a well-known, long-established highway called the Way of the Land of the Philistines. Notice a couple of things. The words in verse 17 speak of the location of the Way of the Land of the Philistines as being nearer, right, which helps to reinforce the location of the bull of the Israelites as they gather to leave Egypt. In fact, the way of the Philistines began at the store cities of Ramesses, also known as Tanis, right up in this area. This yellow line is the way of the land of the Philistines, which God said, I don't want you to take this way. And the way of the Philistines was primarily a trade route. It had Egyptian fortresses all along it right and that was to both monitor the border all right and to protect the myriads of merchants and traders that went up and back along this famous route but What God is well aware of is that if the Israelites took that route, it's likely that not only would Pharaoh command his armies stationed at the various fortresses to stop them and attack them, but the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the other people living up in the Middle East would have a nice route to come down and attack Israel as well. But why would they do that? Why would they come and attack Israel? Simple. With a 600,000 man army and a group of 3 million people who considered themselves generally to be one nation, they were going to have tremendous impact on wherever they stopped and settled. Imagine if the entire population of Canada just upped and decided they were going to migrate to the U.S. all at once. I mean the U.S. would do all it could to prevent it. Right? Be- because the impact on our nation, I don't even know if we could calculate it. Right? This same thing was about to happen here. Israel's leaving would not only devastate Egypt by their loss, but it would change forever the culture and balance of power wherever it is they went. Okay? And one could imagine. That the Pharaoh would quickly know the truth of the matter if the Israelites traveled the way of the Philistines. The Israelites weren't going to go into the desert wilderness for three days to worship their God. They were leaving forever. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that Pharaoh was informed that Moses' demand had changed from a three-day sojourn to a permanent migration. I suspect that had a lot to do with Pharaoh's reaction to send his armies and chariots after the Israelites when he realized that he had unwittingly
1: authorized
0: the loss of one-fourth of his entire nation's population and almost his entire skilled workforce. Anyway, Jehovah knew his people well enough to know. But if they had to fight their way all the way up to the promised land, many, if not most, of the Israelites would simply give up go back to Egypt. Back to the life they knew rather than risk death and war or the great unknown of what lay ahead in Canaan. I mean, what could be more human? We do that all our lives. Forever we're timid about stepping fully into that new life That God has for us forever we're trying to keep one foot in our familiar and comfortable old life and the other into the changed and unknown way of walking with the Lord. Next week we'll continue with examining the probable route of the Exodus.